Well, it's good to have all of you here today. I'm excited for today's message. Glad to see so many of you. You always get a little nervous this time of year when, I don't know if you saw the sign out there warning about the uh, red wing blackbirds. It's real. They are the first angry birds. Yeah, and they do, but today, this morning, they're really nice. They left me alone, so hopefully they're being nice birds on Sunday, but sometimes you don't know about those little angry birds Sunday morning. It's good to have you here today, and I'm excited for today's message. Today, I want to talk about fear and anxiety, and I know when I say the word fear and anxiety, it creates a little fear and anxiety, like, what's he going to say? But I think it's a wonderful topic, and I, you know, I want to be really sensitive because I recognize in some ways the church hasn't always done the best job when we talk about emotional issues. And to some degree or another, every single person has, to, has dealt with fear or anxiety or doubt or maybe disbelief or a little confusion over what is true and what's not true. So we've all experienced that some degree or another, and, and I recognize some people significantly might be challenged with fear or anxiety. So I wanted to be sensitive to people's needs, and I think that you will leave today very encouraged by my message. Now, on one hand, I probably won't be able to answer all your questions on what is fear and how to overcome fear. I might not have any answers for you today because I don't want to keep you here all day, but I think I will send you home with an encouraging message because I want to answer the question. And I think this is one of the biggest questions that people have. Um, when you're dealing with fear and anxiety. And that question is, where is God in the midst of my struggle? Or the other question is, where is God when I feel so much anxiety and fear? See, a lot of people talk to me about fear or anxiety, and they say, um, where is God? Where is he at this point? And I want to go back to John 20 again to talk about where is God in the midst of all our fear and anxiety. So if you weren't here last week, we started this new series that I'm calling What's Next. We just finished the big week of the church calendar. We went from uh, Palm Sunday to Good Friday to the resurrection. So we suddenly have every big major event, some of the three biggest major events in the church, all in one week, and suddenly we're done. Suddenly Good Friday's over, and then the question is, okay, what do we do now? What's next? And as I kind of thought about that uh, question about what's next after the resurrection, I thought, you know, that's exactly what Jesus talked to his disciples after the resurrection before his ascension. We see in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Gospels, the last two chapters of each of these books, he talks about what's next. What do you do after, um, what do you do after the resurrection? So I want to look today specifically at uh, what did Jesus do and what did he say? We talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about Mary Magdalene, who, according to the Gospel of John, she was the first person to find Jesus was missing from his tomb. And we see Mary was very upset, very distraught. We talked about that last week. She's wondering, where is Jesus? She goes to his tomb, and he's missing. He's not there. She's upset. She's kind of frantically looking for somebody to answer a question. In the midst of all her anxiety, Jesus actually shows up. But she's so upset by what is going on that she doesn't even notice Jesus. Now, you have to be pretty upset if you don't even recognize Jesus is there because you're so upset. But where is Jesus when she is searching for him? See, Mary couldn't find him. 
But Jesus found her. See, Jesus is not playing this game of hide-and-go-seek where you try to find him in the midst of your anxiety, but he's going to show up when you're looking for him. So today I want to go back to John 20, but this time I want to talk about verses 19 through 23. We're going to talk about four short verses in the Bible that answer a lot of questions about where is Jesus when you feel a little hopeless. It says that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them his wounds in his hand and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So let's pray a minute. Father, I thank you for that scripture. Father, we thank you that you are with us at all times. And Lord, I pray with our next few moments together, Lord, that you would make that, those verses come alive, that you'd speak to each of us through those verses. And Lord, I just pray that my words would uh, be accurate and used by you, Lord, to bring comfort and encouragement to everyone here today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I love those four little verses. I think they're pretty powerful verses. It's a short little description of what is going on with Jesus' disciples the evening of his resurrection. You know, we started out with 12 disciples, and he lost Judas. And then so we only have 10 disciples gathered because Thomas, the other disciple, he's not there with him. He's doubting, and so he is not with him. So we have his 10 disciples that are together, and they're locked away in a room because they're scared. See, rumor has it that the Roman soldiers are now looking for Jesus' disciples, because after they killed Jesus, they're looking to kill more people. So if you're a disciple of Jesus at the time or follower, you're going to be pretty upset. And that's why the scripture says that the disciples were afraid. They had very good reason to be afraid. Their lives were at risk. And so the word fear is often used to also describe the word to withdraw. And so we see what Jesus' disciples are doing. They're scared. They're afraid. They're wondering what's going on. Everything that they thought was true, they're now questioning it. So they're dealing with doubt and confusion. So what do they do? They withdraw. They go in a room and they lock the door. And that's kind of where our story begins. And I think a lot of us, we look at this story and say, I I really don't relate. I don't know what it would be like to uh, be worried that if somebody knew I was a Christian that they would want to kill me. Ted and Leslie talked about in their experience in the 1040 window. That is a reality. But the United States... I'm not really afraid that somebody's going to say, oh, you're a pastor and I'm going to kill you. However, I think what is more of a concern in our post-Christian American culture is we wonder, what do people think about me because they know I'm a Christian? See, we live in a culture now that says live by your feelings. If you feel it, that must be okay. If you feel it, that justifies your behavior. And as followers of Jesus, we know we live by the truth. We live by the Bible and what the Bible says to do. And there are times I do get concerned, and I'm sure some of you share that concern. We think, what would a person do if they knew my religious beliefs and how seriously I took my faith? Would I be accepted or would I be rejected? So we might not be scared that I might get killed, but we might be scared that we might get rejected. And that's what the disciples are feeling like that, that morning. They're feeling like if I go out of these locked doors, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected to the point where I'll probably get killed. So the bottom line is the disciples, they are afraid and they're pausing because they have a lot of anxiety going on. 
And it's something that you can't look at the disciples and say, hey guys, just get over it. You can't say to them, get over it. It's a very real feeling, what they're experiencing. See, the thing with fear, it's a real enemy. Fear does steal a lot of joy. It steals a lot of futures. It steals a lot of confidence. And it can steal your security. See, one of the big problems with fear is sometimes we don't even know we're dealing with fear. Because, see, what we tend to do is avoid the things that we fear. So you might say to somebody, do you have any fears in your life? They're like, nope, absolutely not. You ask them a better question, what do you avoid? Then suddenly you're going to kind of find out a little bit more what you might fear. I might say, well, I have no fear of flying. Well, have you ever flown in an airplane? You might say, well, yeah, maybe I do have a little fears. And I'll tell you, I think it's encouraging. If you actually do know that you are experiencing some fear or some doubt or some anxiety or confusion, I think you should take comfort in the fact that, that you're self-aware of that. Because I think that's a sign that God is moving in your life that wants to bring restoration and wholeness to areas of your life where you really feel like you're lacking confidence. So what does Jesus do about fear? What does he do about anxiety? I love this next verse in John 20, verse 19. It says, suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. That's what Jesus does about fear and anxiety. He comes and he stands among them. See, if you're dealing with fear or anxiety, I hope this verse, even though I spelled among wrong, I put it amount them. I just want to bring that up because you're all looking at that thinking, <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I was afraid of that. See, I think if you're dealing with fear, anxiety, that verse does give you a lot of encouragement because the disciples are hiding, they're in fear, they're isolating, and what does Jesus do? He walks right in the room. He walks right into a locked door. He walks right through it. So you notice Jesus doesn't just knock on the door gently and say, hey, can I come in? Do you need a little help? He doesn't tiptoe around the subject. He walks right in the room. He doesn't have to use a door. He doesn't have to go through the door. He suddenly walks into any situation that you are in. If you're experiencing fear or doubt or anxiety, the scripture should give you a lot of comfort to know that Jesus will walk. That was a little unexpected. <laughs> You're all like, no, was it? <laughs> oh, man, you never know what's going to happen to these messages. So today I want to talk about what does Jesus do and what does he say about fear and anxiety. See, we look in this scripture, we look at these verses, and I think you cannot miss what Jesus does. Man. See, the first thing that he does, he walks right into the situation. That's powerful. Second thing he does, he shows the disciples the scars. That's pretty powerful. Third thing he does, he breathes on his disciples. 
See, why does, why does Jesus do all this? He does it for a very specific reason. To prove to everybody that he is God. See, recently I read an article about John Piper on this verse, and I want to share what John Piper's takeaway from this verse is, because I think it's very important to see the power of Jesus in action. John Piper says, and what is Jesus saying in his actions? The first thing he's saying is, I come on my own when people are afraid. See, I like that he just comes into a situation. The second thing John Piper says, he says, I don't wait for them to get their act together. I think that's sometimes a misperception that we have when we're dealing with fear, anxiety, or some emotional issues. Well, if I get my act together, then maybe Jesus can come in and help me. Instead, Jesus doesn't wait for people to have enough faith to overcome fear because, you know, it's never going to happen. Instead, Jesus comes to help people that don't have enough faith to overcome fear. And that's the confidence we have about Jesus' actions in this verse. That Jesus isn't waiting for you to get it all together. He's not waiting for you to get it perfect, but he says, I see your need, I see your struggle, and I'm going to walk into your situation, and I'm going to give you enough faith so you can overcome. And that's why this is such good news, because Jesus found a way to be with us. You don't have to get all better for Jesus to come and take care of it. See, many of you know at Lake Effect Church, we have four main pillars, or we have four core values of our church. And our first core value is that everybody would know God. It's our desire that everybody here would know God, but everybody in the city of Grand Rapids and Western Michigan would know God. And see, knowing God isn't just something you do on the day that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Knowing God is something that happens every day for the rest of your life once you're a believer. It's constantly Jesus coming into your life and revealing himself more and more to you so you know God better and better and better. And that's what the first thing that Jesus does when he comes into the room. He says, I just want you to know me better. God's going to use any circumstance in our life as an opportunity so we can know God better. As I said in my introduction, one thing I hear from people is, is dealing with anxiety is, where is God right now? And we look at John 20 and we say, you know, he's standing right next to you. God invites himself into our fear and anxiety. He invites us in when we have a door locked. He's going to come in. But then I'll usually hear the question, okay, but I don't feel God right now. I'm not feeling him. I don't sense him, my fear, my anxiety, or my doubt, or my confusion. It's speaking louder to me than anything that comforting that Jesus would say. So I tell people, then you better, when you're having the fear speak louder, listen. Listen for Jesus. And we go into John 20, and we can see what Jesus is saying. And see, the very first thing Jesus says to his disciples, is says, my peace be with you. And then he showed him the wounds in his hands and his side. See, why did Jesus show his wounds? He wanted to prove to them that he was God. See, anybody can say, peace be with you. It doesn't do a, lot of, doesn't do a whole lot of good, unless you're Jesus. And see, that's why the disciples, it says, they were glad when they saw his wounds. Why were they glad when they saw his wounds? Because Jesus' wounds are visible marks of his victory. See, when he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side, he was proving to them that he is God. And his wounds are proof of the victory that he won on the cross because the cross couldn't kill him, but he rose again. And see, the wounds that you and I receive, every single person in this room has received some wounds in their life to some degree. Those are just temporary wounds. Those are just wounds for a little while. 
See, our wounds are designed also to be visible marks of Jesus' victory. Everything hard and difficult that we experience, God intends to turn it around to be used as a visible mark of Jesus' victory in our life. See, there is no wound that we will ever experience in our life that will not be subject to the healing and the victory of Jesus Christ. See, peace isn't some kind of commodity that Jesus comes and he gives, like he gives a Band-Aid or he gives a little medicine. Instead, Instead, peace is an attribute of who Jesus is. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's saying, I am with you. He's saying, I am with you. I'm not just going to give you like a Band-Aid or something. I am with you. That's why he's standing with you at all times, no matter what you're going through, because it's his attribute is with you. That's why in Isaiah 9, verse 6, the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And later we go to Isaiah 53, verse 5, when it talks about why Jesus came. It said, but Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we might be made whole, and he was whipped so that we might be healed. See, this this word whole is a very, very important word in the Bible. See, the idea is that Jesus' peace will bring us wholeness. In fact, some translations will interchange the word peace and wholeness, go back and forth. And the reason we do that is because the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom is the whole idea or the sense of well-being that comes when brokenness is made whole again. And shalom is when the broken pieces of your life are actually coming back together again. So why do we need shalom? Because we are broken people. We are broken people whose life has been difficult and hard and challenging, and we need the shalom of Jesus to come bring everything back together again. In Isaiah 61, Jesus says he came to bind up the brokenhearted. See, the word for brokenhearted is an interesting word. It's a combination of two words in Hebrew. The first is leb, and the second is shabar. Leb means heart, and shabar means to broken or to break or to rend violently. The whole idea of this, of this word is the whole concept of, um, of a heart, a human heart that is broken, that it's shattered into pieces. It's interesting. It's one of the definitions is rend. Rend is to break, to tear it apart. And I often wonder if that, that group, rend collective, I have no idea why. I'm just rabbit trailing right now. I don't know why I'm even doing this. I'm kind of saying, stop, Jack, stop. But Ren Collective, it's kind of an interesting term if Ren needs to shatter. And then the second part is collective. It's what God has was shattered, what's come together. And it's a beautiful picture of Ren Collective, what is shattered and broken has come together. So the word Shabar re- refers to the literal breaking of the human heart. And that's what the resurrected king comes to do. He comes to restore that because the word shabar is often used in the other parts of Isaiah to describe dry branches. And because the branches are so dry, the whole tree withers. Or it will use to describe a statue that has fallen down and all the pieces of the statue are broken into thousands of pieces. And so that's the whole picture that Isaiah is is talking about of the human heart that is shattered and it's broken and there's just a million little pieces on the floor. There's a Dutch... Had to do this for tulip time. Dutch, uh, Dutch, uh, uh, psych- I don't know what he is. A leading researcher in the field of, ta- of trauma, Bessel van der Klok. He's actually born in Amsterdam, professor at Harvard and Boston University. In all of his research on trauma, 
and traumatic events that happen to people. This is one of the biggest pioneers. His bottom line is conclusion is that every single person carries within themselves a bit of a shattered personality. That every person has dealt with a broken heart at some time in their life. And see, sometimes when we talk about shattered personality, we go to the big degree of thinking about DID or multiple personality disorder, but what this man is finding is that every single person has dealt with some kind of human heart that's been broken to some degree. Now, I'm not saying that to make any of you feel like, uh, well, like bad, like, I'm saying that because I think all of you recognize that you have dealt with some shatteredness in your own life. And sometimes when you deal with shatteredness in your your life, you think, I'm the only one. No one else has. And so I think his research is, is encouraging to know you're not the only one. We're all in the same boat. And I like it when science kind of confirms kind of what Scripture is talking about already. If Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, we know people have a broken heart, and now science is just confirming just the need for Christ to come into our life and to heal the brokenness that we have in our life because everybody deals with it. See, I want to say that because there is a reason behind sometimes your emotions or your hurt or your pain or your doubt or anxiety that it's real, that's validated. See, one of the The second core value of Lake Effect Church is that everybody would find freedom in their life. The freedom that God has for them. Actually, I'm pointing to the idea of changing it from finding freedom to live in freedom because Jesus has made a way for us to live in freedom. You don't have to go find freedom. It's there. We just have to learn to live in it because Jesus has paid the price for everything for us to live in full freedom. We don't have to search for it. It's there. Jesus walks into our circumstance and brings it. But now this is what I want to get to. This is a whole idea of brokenness. This is how wholeness works. I love this quote by Steve Wines in the book Whole. It says, this is how wholeness works. He says, this is how wholeness works. What has been broken and restored in you and me is being transformed into healing for the rest of the world. See, that's what Jesus wants to do in each and every one of us that's experienced any brokenness. He wants us to receive wholeness, not just for us, but also for the rest of the world. See, this is a significant part of our restoration. So you notice the first time in this scripture that Jesus comes in, he says, my peace be with you. He's saying that peace is for you. Then Jesus comes back and he repeats himself and says, Um, peace be with you. This time he's saying, my peace be with you because you're going to bring that to other people. And that's where we read in the next, in John verse 21, and Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. See, now Jesus is commissioning his disciples like he did to Mary. He's sending them on their mission. See, now if you're one of those 10 disciples, you'd probably be pretty nervous right now. First of all, you're already locked away in your room. You got the door locked. You're nervous. You're afraid. Jesus walks in through the wall, that would probably scare you a little bit. And now he's saying, I am sending you out. That would probably make you a little anxious because those people are still out there that want to kill you. They didn't go away. But yet Jesus has come up with this idea that he is going to send you out. That would make you a little nervous. I'm sure when Jesus said that, I can imagine the disciples probably were pretty silent. I just always wonder, too, did he kind of walk, just for dramatic purposes, walk over to the door and kind of unlock it while he's telling him that? 
full of drama. See, if you're the disciples, you probably have a tendency to say, I really don't want to go. You know, send Peter. He's a wild one. Just send that one out. Kind of like you kind of would hope that Jesus would look at the 10 disciples left and say, okay, two of you need to go out. The other eight can stay back. That's kind of what we hope for. But what Jesus does, he says, no, I'm going to send all of you. Every one of you needs to go out. See, what Jesus is doing at this point is helping people discover their purpose in life. And that's our third core value of Lake Effect Church is that we would discover our purpose. Because there is nothing better than knowing the purpose that God created for you. And the purpose that we see here in this verse is that he is sending you out to the world. Now, you notice what Jesus did. He didn't say, hey, I'm sending you out, so go outside, and then I will take your fear away. No. He showed great compassion. First, he addressed their fear. And then he established their purpose in their life. So this group of guys who once was caught up in a lot of fear and doubt and confusion, now they're starting to feel a little bit more peace because Jesus said, my peace be with you. See, what's changed? The guys are still outside that want to kill them. The reason they're afraid is still there. But suddenly, now they have Jesus. Jesus is with them. Jesus has showed them his scars. He showed them his victory. See, the threat is not gone, but now what they're leaving with is a new confidence. They're leaving with a new confidence that Jesus is actually with them. That's the one thing they were doubting before. But there's no way these guys are going to get out of that locked house on their own. Sure, they've been comforted by Jesus. They know he's there. They're experiencing peace throwing in their life. But see, now what they need is they need some power. They're going to need some power if they're going to walk out of that house and actually do what Jesus called them to do. So that's why the scripture says, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, they needed power. As if Jesus was saying, I have called you to do something that's beyond your ability, it's beyond your capacity to do on your own. And I recognize that. So Jesus said, it's not just good enough that I'm standing next to you, but I'm also going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. That you're going to have my Holy Spirit inside of you so you can do things that you never thought possible. And some of that is to encourage them that you're going to go out of this door and some of your threats are still there. Some of your threats are still there, but you're going to have the confidence of the Holy Spirit in you and of Jesus walking next to you that you can get through anything. And then he tells the disciples that they have Jesus' authority to do something. When you first read it, that seems a little strange. In verse 23, it picks up and it says, For if, anyone, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's what Jesus tells the disciple. That's your job description. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. And I think your first question is, well, wait a minute. I thought it was only Jesus' job to forgive sins. That's very true. So what's the new twist? 
What exactly does this mean? First of all, I want to clarify that in the book of John, when he talks about sin, he's not talking about like moral failure or you did something wrong or maybe you swore or you did something. Or He's talking about sin as it relates to not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, not being a follower of Jesus Christ or living in unbelief or living in doubt. So he's addressing you're not having a relationship with Jesus or not being repentant as sin. So what John is saying, that if you share the gospel, you have been empowered by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ on Jesus' behalf. And if you go out and share the gospel message with somebody and they receive that message and they repent of their sins and they say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you can look at that person and say, your sins are forgiven. But the flip side, if somebody says, "Mm -mm, I don't believe in that message, you can look at them and tell them they're not forgiven of their sins. Jesus is telling the disciples, you have a lot of responsibility. You need to go out and have discernment at who is a follower of Jesus and who is not a follower of Jesus. And that's the responsibility that Jesus is giving to the, the, the disciples that day. And he might say, that's pretty serious. How do I know if someone's a follower and someone is not a follower? That's why you have the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of you to give you discernment, to help you understand. See, I like in in John 20, verse 23, in the message translation, it says it this way. If you forgive someone else's sins, they're gone for good. If you know that a person is an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, you can tell them your sins are gone for good. But if you don't think they're a follower of Jesus, if you don't forgive their sins, then what are you going to do with them? See, that's the question we're faced with. What are you going to do with people who are not a follower of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? And that's where Jesus is sending us out. He's sending us out with the power and authority of Jesus Christ to make disciples, to share the good news of who Jesus is. And see, when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit and we step into the commission that God is making to each of us, then we're making a difference in the world. And that's what we've been designed and created to do. We've been created to make a difference in the world. And the whole conclusion of each of the gospel stories is Jesus sending you out, sending you out to make disciples, sending you out. And some of you might be here today thinking, Jack, you know, that's real nice and everything, that God has a purpose for me and a destiny for me, and he wants to send me out to make a purpose. To be honest with you, I really don't feel like I'm prepared. I really feel like I have more anxiety in my life or more fear in my life than I have peace. And you might be struggling with that. And I want to be sensitive to that. Just because they say Jesus is standing next to you and you're filled with the Holy Spirit suddenly doesn't make it all go away. I wish it did. I wish I could say to you, okay, that is. Paul David Tripp, who I like a lot, has this neat phrase that I like. He says, you and I live between the already and not yet. That's where we live, between the already and not yet. We live between the resurrection and the death and the ascension of Jesus Christ and heaven. On one hand, we have everything that Jesus did for us on the cross to pave the way for us to live a life in freedom and victory. And then we have heaven, and we live in between this gap space. And sometimes this gap space between everything Jesus did for us to go into heaven can be difficult and can be hard and it can be challenging. 
And that whole process is called that sanctification, where God works things out of our life. He works things out of our life to make us more like Christ. And sometimes that is a tricky road. But see, the Bible's filled with encouragement. It's filled with encouragement of what God wants to do in our life. And one of the things that it tells us in Matthew 19 is what God wants to do when Christ returns, there will be a renewal of all things. That word renew is used a lot in the Gospels. And the renew, what it means is, it's formed by two Greek words that means go back to Genesis. It means go back to Genesis. That's the literal definition of the word renewal. It means go back to Genesis. And that's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to bring us back to Genesis so we can function and live the way we are created to be. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross and was resurrected, so our sins could be forgiven, so we have eternity in store, but actually we could be restored to what God intended for us to be, and that the earth could be restored to what God had intended it to be. But sometimes that in-between period can be a little longer than sometimes we're comfortable with. Sometimes it can be a little harder. And I think it's a beautiful picture when we see in the story in John where God breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. It reminds you of what God did when he created mankind in the book of Genesis. He took dirt from the ground and he breathed on it and created life for the very first time. And what does Jesus do after the resurrection? He comes back and he breathes on people again. He fills them again with their new life. He fills them with the resurrection power that they need. He fills them with the Holy Spirit so you have every single thing that you need so you can make it on the journey of already, but not yet. He's prepared everything for us, and I recognize some of you are in that awkward stage in the middle. And I want to leave you with this confidence from, from Thessalonians 5, verse 23. It says, Now may the God of all peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. That's the confidence we have as we're in that period of already but not yet, is that the Father's standing there, leading, guiding, and directing, and carrying you through. And he's faithful. And he will surely do everything that he planned to do for you. That's the confidence that we can have about our fear and anxiety, is that Jesus steps right into the midst of our fear and anxiety. He can step through a wall. Any number of walls that you might put up and lock him out, he will step into it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the confidence that you can have. That there's no area in your life or in your heart that he's not aware of that he's ready to step into. And that's the confidence we can have that once he starts, he's going to carry it through. So I want to pray with you while I have Carson come up and he's going to lead us in one final song. So, Father, I do thank you for our time together. And, Lord, I thank you that you are the God of healing and wholeness, that you are the God of victory and the God of restoration. I thank you that you are a God who walks through walls, that, Lord, a lock cannot keep you out. And we thank you for that today. Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, whatever they're dealing with in their life, Lord, that I thank you that you are in the midst of their circumstance and their situation. 
giving them hope and confidence, revealing yourself to them in a way that they would know that you are God. I thank you, God, that you do that, that you will show the wounds in your hand and in your side to prove that you are God. Lord, I pray for anybody here today that might be experiencing fear or anxiety or doubt or confusion or maybe disbelief or maybe even discouragement, that you would encourage them right now, Lord, by revealing yourself to them in a more powerful way that you would settle any fears or doubt or anxiety that they're dealing with. Lord, that you would give them confidence to know that maybe what they're dealing with, Lord, that they can walk over it. Lord, I pray if any fear or doubt or anxiety is stopping anybody here, Lord, that you would just give them courage today and boldness to walk on top of it. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our life. We thank you, Lord, that you are renewing all things, that you are bringing us back to Genesis to, to make us be the people that you created us to be. We thank you, Lord, for knitting us together in our mother's womb, Lord, so that we could be who you created us to be. And Lord, I just pray that you'd move in power and do that among each of us here. And Lord, I pray today that we leave in the confidence of knowing who we are and knowing what is filling us and knowing who is standing next to us so that we could do what you're calling us to do. Father, I just pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to work among each of us today. Lord, would you lead us in this last song, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.